So at Carolinas, we are doing only zone one deployment. And basically for us, um, we're using it in uh, patients that are non-responsive to resuscitation that we think have an abdominal or a pelvic um, source of their hemorrhage. That's David Calloway. And today on ED ECMO, we're talking Raboa. This is Zach Shiner, and I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you know all about Raboa. Well, today, I think we're going to blow your mind. There are things that we're going to talk about in the next 30 minutes that I had no idea about. And so with the help of David Calloway, Tatsua Knori, and Austin Johnson, let's dive into some Raboa. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. 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 This is ED ECMO. So let's get back to David Calloway. I want to ask you and show you how they do at Carolina's Raboa in the ER. What we do is, again, we do our primary survey, we dress airway, we dress any obvious um, extremity hemorrhage, and um, if we think there's a tension in the thorax, while this is going on, someone's doing the fast exam. What we've started to push towards is anybody who is a, a sick um, or shocky trauma patient is getting a ephemeral arterial line. And so we'll have that being placed um, empirically or, or uh, just so we can monitor blood pressure more aggressively with the idea that if we then need to go to Reboa, we can upsize and place a catheter. Okay, so we're talking about hemorrhagic control of the distal aorta using a balloon catheter that you can place in a couple different areas. David talked about how they're using an arterial line before they even put in the Reboa catheter to monitor pressures to see how well they are doing. Now, one of the recent advancements in Reboa has been the advent of the Prytime smaller seven French catheter. Now, I've used this catheter a couple times. I've also done the traditional way with CODA several times on patients. And I think the new five, seven French catheter does offer some significant advantages. First of all, it's smaller. The second thing is that the catheter is actually stiff, so you can place it more easily and you can also keep it up in that area more easily. So let's get back to David and how they do this systematically at the Carolinas. We have just begun the process of adding the ER Reboa catheter. So our experience of, of I think about seven cases in the last four months has been with the CODA catheter. So our process is patient looks like they're in shock. We think they have an abdominal or pelvic uh, source. We'll bind the pelvis. Um, we'll have our femoral, common femoral artery A-line in place. We'll shoot a quick chest x-ray to make sure the aorta looks okay. And then while we're doing that, we're starting to upsize with the, the catheter. So, so we'll have two procedural uh, docs down doing the catheter. One will be minding the line with a nurse, uh, minding the wire with a nurse. Uh, one nurse will be monitoring the A-line. And then the main procedure doc will be upsizing the A-line, um, putting in the 12 French introducer, and then inserting the uh, CODA catheter, inflating it while the other uh, doc or nurse is monitoring the wire. Then once we're up, we're monitoring um, our response with, uh, with our blood pressure and continuing our damage control resuscitation. Um, that patient then, if they stabilize it all, is going immediately to um, IR or to our hybrid OR suite that can do IR and um, open operative repair. Okay, so placement of an intra-arterial catheter, you blow up the balloon, take some steps. This isn't rocket science, right? This is stuff that we can do. But does it actually work? And that's the real question. So on these patients, we can theoretically say 
yeah, we're going to increase the proximal pressure. We're going to decrease their chance of having a traumatic arrest of their heart. But does the literature show this? Does the numbers actually say that this is beneficial? And that's where the recent controversy has certainly gotten more heated. Right now with, with, with Reboa, I think that the animal data is pretty strong, that it improves survival. The physiologic data shows it improves mean arterial pressure, central uh, perfusion pressure to the brain and to the, to the coronary system, um, and shows that it improves mortality in, in otherwise lethal swine models of hemorrhage. So whether it's splenic trauma or iliac artery injuries, the data shows that Reboa gives you good hemorrhage control and then uh, provides improved survival at either 60 minutes or 200 minutes, depending on what study you're looking at. The human trials have all been case reports for the most part, um, but I think that they show that um, when deployed properly, you have improved survival for, for patients with bad pelvic fractures, with vascular disruption. Um, you know, and the, the recent aorta trial, which is a pro, uh, prospective observational trial, showed that it is um, as good, uh, if not slightly better, than open thoracotomy with survival rates of 28% for Reboa and about 16% for open thoracotomy without a statistical, statistically significant difference. So it's probably at least as good and, and has probably less of a physiologic impact. But also it, it allows us to have a new tool to treat things like the unstable pelvic fracture that historically trauma, trauma surgeons were loathe to do a thoracotomy for a pelvic fracture. You know, this is a new device that can, can help us, and it's a new technique that can help us with this complex, you know, injury that we see pretty frequently in level one trauma centers in the U.S. I think that the Nori trial that just got published is showing an association between Reboa and increased mortality is an important trial. Um, it's a huge trial, 45,000 people in the, in the trauma database, and they did propensity scoring to look at 452 blunt trauma patients with Reboa and tried to match them up with ISS and other physiologic parameters. And they, they showed an association between, you know, Reboa and increased mortality. That's important to note. Um, the Japanese do Reboa slightly differently. They had a longer occlusion time, about 90 minutes. And they also tend to do intermittent Reboa, which is dropping the balloon and inflating the balloon to, to affect perfusion. Um, and, and, you know, I think that they do it differently. This data may actually prove to be um, really important in, in looking at future mort mortality and morbidity studies. I think we need to take it seriously. We need to look at it, um, and we need to, to use that to um, study how we do Reboa. We tend to have shorter um, occlusion times. We tend to do it um, in an area where we can get them very rapidly to the OR or to the, to the uh, IR suite, and that's a different system than they have in Japan. So Reboa, not without controversy. The Nuri study, as David was commenting about, showed some potentially bad associations, poor outcomes associated with Reboa. And so I decided to get on the show none other than Tatsua Nuri, the author, first author of that paper, and a friend of ED ECMO, to tell us about what his study said. I think we have to be careful about um, when to use Reboa. I mean, I think there's a good you know, huge emphasis on doing rework. So I think people are super excited about using rework. Um, for some particular cases, I think rework might work well. But in some cases, like, you know, um, like a blunt cardiac arrest, it probably doesn't work. Um, and some cases, there's a good potential to make it worse. Um, yeah, like, you know, um, 
for example, the paper we published two years ago um, showed blunt um, shock, you know, trauma. Um, it actually doesn't work. It makes worse. This might be because, you know, the blunt trauma, there's multiple injuries, you know, there's usually not only one injury. So you press reward to, to temporize pelvic fractures, um, bleeding from pelvic fractures. But at the same time, that may make it worse in the um, bleeding in like thoracic cavities or on um, like a big TBIs. Uh, you might not know these, you know, um, injuries before you press reward. Um, so, you know, reward might help for the pelvic fractures, but um, if you press reward, um, like say it's infrarenal, um, that can potentially make the renal artery um, bleeding worse, um, could make, um, you know, chest injuries, um, hemorrhage worse. So you have to be careful when you press rebar. Okay, there it is. Tatsua telling us about some of the disadvantages of Reboa, some of the potential problems with increasing the pressure head on a multi-system trauma patient. He's talking about an intrathoracic injury that potentially could have more bleeding as a result of it. He also mentioned TBI, traumatic brain injury, as a downside of Reboa. Now, David, just prior to that, had mentioned some of the the potential places where this study may have had problems. And I had Tatsua specifically address those now. In my studies, we didn't measure, you know, um, how long is the inflation time of rebirth. So we actually don't know um, that plays a role. Um, but in my practice in Japanese hospitals, um, it is often um, difficult to find trauma surgeons. So young physicians press rebirth to just temporizing, you know, um, and stabilizing breathing on the patient, then um, hopefully we can get the trauma surgeons uh, to fix these problems. So that's, I think, um, possible. So I think that's a big debate, you know, if you have a trauma surgeon 24-7, if your trauma surgeon are ready to do surgeries, why you have to press rebar? Then in some hospital, like in New Mexico, where I work, you know, the Level one trauma center is just the University of New Mexico, and often the patient have to have a flight like three hours from you know Albuquerque. Then you know try to stabilize this patient totally makes sense, um, but in these cases, debo uh, inflation time can be super long. You know maybe 60 minutes, two hours. It's very possible. So I think that's a big debate, you know. You want to use the reward to stabilize the patient to, until to get the definitive care. Um, but in these situations, inflation time can be super long. Um, so I think that we don't know the answer yet. All right, so Tatsuo did recognize some of the limitations of his study. But let's ask him directly. What types of patients does he think that we should be doing Reboa on? For Penetrating trauma, yes, actually, and um, I think that the Rebor might work well um, because it's a penetrating trauma. It's usually only one or maybe two big injuries. Uh, not usually not the multi-system traumas. You know, um, the Rebor has a great chance to temporize in breathing, um, stop breathing. Then you can get trauma surgeon. You can get the OR ready for uh, definitive care. 
Um, so I think the penetrating injuries, I think that totally makes sense to put Libor. All right, we've been talking trauma for Raboa, but let's change it up a little bit. What about other indications? What about the AAA? What about the ectopic? I've actually personally had one experience with placing a AAA uh, catheter on a AAA patient, but I wanted to get Tatsuo's opinion. Is this a place that we should be taking these catheters? In my experience in Japanese hospitals, yes, I have used for GI bleed, I have used for ectopic pregnancies. Because, I mean, these are actually the great candidate because it's only one bleeding source, you know, just the one place. So you know where the problem is. Um, so actually, that's a great candidate. Um, so some of the hospital even have kind of reward team, not necessarily a team, but you know, people can do reward in the hospital, like inpatient in the ICUs, then um, they can, you know, place the reward for these, you know, cases. Um, I think that totally, I mean, makes sense to do it. Um, and it's actually, it's much easier to do um, in these cases compared to trauma cases. Because it's not less chaotic, you know, you know the problem is, it's not like a super sudden, you you know, it's more kind of gradual worsening, so you can, you have time to, you know, get preparations. Um, so I think, you know, these medical cases actually might be a, or even a better candidate for Ebor. All right, so we talked with Tatsua. He's talked to us about several of the potential downsides. Maybe there are some patients outside of trauma that would benefit from Roa. But I want to introduce you to another guy. His name is Austin Johnson, and he blew my mind. I mean, he really takes the sophistication associated with Raboa to a whole new level. And I'm going to introduce you to here and have him start talking to you about what he's doing up at UC Davis. So I initially came out here really interested in TBI. I'm a, um, my graduate work was in neuroscience. And I started trying to understand some of the hemodynamics of TBI resuscitation. Both, you know, permissive hypotension doesn't work in a TBI patient, so how do you get around that problem? But also a lot of your TBI patients end up um, being hypertensive due to a myriad of issues during their resuscitation. And so I, I was really interested in hemodynamics of traumatic brain injury in like the multi-trauma patient and started looking at that in clinical trials. And then um, soon after that, um, was introduced to uh, Tim Williams and Luke Neff, who are a couple of um, really smart um, surgeons working on very similar Reboa type problems. And sort of that's how the collaboration started. So, you know, ever since for the last couple of years, we've been working on how do you optimize your multi-trauma patient during resuscitation? And a big part of that is Reboa right now. Okay. So I think most of us sort of think when we're doing Reboa that we're just putting a balloon up and we're increasing the blood pressure and we're allowing for the patient to not go into arrest or get out of arrest in a traumatic situation. But it's so much more complicated than that. And this is where Austin and I started having discussions that were, I think, really cool. Let's start talking about what happens when you blow up that balloon in a Reboa catheter. You, you have to, as soon as you blow up a, a Reboa balloon, all of a sudden you compartmentalize um, an individual or, you know, a lot of what we do is, is in the lab, so an animal. Um, and all of a sudden your physiology proximally and distally is very different. Um, we know that as soon as you blow up a balloon and anyone, this makes perfect sense, you blow up a balloon and you're going to immediately start to have distal ischemia. 
Um, and along with that come all the complications of distal ischemia, whether or not that's cell lysis, increases in lactate, you know, your ischemic metabolites, your increases in potassium, etc. And I think that's well recognized. I think what may not be as, well, and actually, I shouldn't say that. And I shouldn't say it's not well recognized, um, but it may not be quite as obvious just sort of what the prox what's happening proximally. So if you have a profoundly hypotensive patient in shock, for in hemorrhagic shock, um, as soon as you blow up that balloon, you can resuscitate that patient proximally very easily, um, and hopefully your proximal physiology will get better. But simultaneously, as you resuscitate that patient, you have to realize that by blowing up that balloon, you just created, you know, you just changed the afterload substantially. All of a sudden, the heart is only perfusing a very small total volume. Um, and that massive increase in aortic in afterload um, over time, we think, can be detrimental. So in our animal studies, um, animals become, with complete aortic occlusion, become approximately, they have superphysiologic blood pressure. So they have maps of 120, uh, of 130. Um, and um, that can, certainly it's reperfusing things, um, but it also can lead to complications in the long term, we believe. So um, you have to wonder if you have a map of 130 and you have a traumatic brain injury, what does that do to the TBI? Um, what happens over time to the, to the pump, to the heart, when, uh, when it's trying to, when its afterload is that high? Um, so as soon as, I guess, so as soon as you blow up that balloon, you've compartmentalized and now you have two totally different vasculature systems. I think simultaneously, with everything that's going on proximally, distally, you're getting complete uh, vasodilation. So if you go back to dog studies that were done in, in the 90s looking at, you know, limb ischemia relatively rapidly after a complete occlusion of an artery, um, everything distal to that will vasodilate. And within 60 seconds, oftentimes, you sort of get maximal vasodilation. So I think that's also very important when you start to really understand the physiology of Raboa is that you're getting maximal distal vasodilation well, approximately, you have a very active vasculature that, if a patient or an animal has been aggressively resuscitated, can be either physiologic or even superphysiologic. Okay, so compartmentalizing the body. This is a new concept associated with the use of Reboa. Also, the idea that you get distal vasodilation associated with blowing up the balloon. But there's actually a little nuance here that we haven't talked about yet, and that is the idea of partial Reboa or even intermittent Reboa, where we blow up the balloon maybe partways, or maybe we blow the balloon up completely and then let it down slowly to create some flow through that. We're gonna have Austin talk about that concept right now. So everything I will say is, you know, what basically no studies have actually looked at any of this. So this is all sort of what we've learned in the lab and sort of talking through this as a, you know, we have a large collaborative group and sort of what we've come to is, I think um, the initial part is, you know, you have a patient coming in in hemorrhagic shock um, as you go complete occlusion. So complete occlusion allows the proximal physiology to, to rebound, right? So um, you, you allow for a little bit of clot stabilization distally and it gives you a little time for you to get your lines. It gives you time for you to, you know, have the patient intubated. Um, but you allow for that proximal physiology to stabilize. 
Now, I think, um, I think if after 10 or 15 minutes, and so we, we study this often and we sort of, we just, uh, Tim, Timothy Williams, who's a, a vascular surgeon within the Air Force, um, who's one of the, one of the collaborate, collaborators within the, in the lab just presented some data where we use 20 minutes of complete occlusion to begin with. And that's the, basically to allow for proximal physiology to get better and to allow for clot stabilization. After that, if you are super physiologic, you know, the, the ideas are you can utilize a little bit of partial reboa, right? And the concept of can you allow just a little bit of blood flow past the balloon to offload that proximal aorta? And will a little bit of blood flow past the balloon um, perfuse your distal, you know, everything distally a little bit? And will it help? Um, maybe wash out a little bit of those developing distal ischemic metabolites very slowly. The problem with that is it's very difficult to do. What has been used to date more is, you know, intermittent reboa, which has been used to try to prolong your duration. Um, and we can talk about that at some point and why we think that maybe intermittent reboas could, could be detrimental. But this idea of partial reboa, where you allow a little bit of a little bit of flow past the balloon, but not a lot. You don't want to destabilize any clots that have started to stabilize. And if your proximal physiology is now more stable, you certainly don't want to allow a ton of blood to go by and then lead to um, destabilization again. So if you needed the time, you know, 10 minutes of complete occlusion, 15 minutes of complete occlusion, and then in the right setting, you could try something like a little bit of partial repo. And by what I say by in the right setting, I mean in a place where you have a blood bank, and or you have access to um, blood products, and you have, and you're relatively near to some sort of definitive um, hemorrhage control. The reason why is because as soon as you attempt to do any partial reboa, you have the potential to really destabilize the patient proximally, and you need to be able to give them blood if that were to ha if you were to become unstable. Now, the hard part about all of anything with partial reboa with our current technology is that what we've found um, is that it's exceptionally difficult to titrate your flow, your distal flow around a balloon. So you, once you've completely occluded that balloon, so that balloon goes up and it gets to, you know, you blow up the balloon in the aorta, there's a bunch of uh, surface tension, there's a bunch of, you know, basically friction between the edges of the balloon and the aortic walls. When you start to come off, um, what we've learned is that you, you'll, if you drop your balloon by like half a mil at a time, There'll be a period where you'll get a little bit of flow, but then you very rapidly have a large increase in your flow. And um, part of that is due to physics, right? So flow is related, you know, to your radius to the fourth power. So you make very small changes leads to very large changes in flow. So that's part of it. And, and part of it is just that, you know, balloons probably don't deflate perfectly uniformly. So you get almost an on-off, right? Um, so being able to titrate very carefully um, has been difficult, uh, and we spent a lot of time trying to understand that. And how do you how do you measure that? How can you um, how do you control it? But really, how if you were to attempt to move to partial reboa, what do you use as your guide to say, okay, this is this is the right amount of flow? All right. So intermittent reboa, partial reboa, potentially partial reboa has some physiologic benefits, but it's exceedingly difficult to do. And as you decrease the volume of that Reboa catheter balloon, you do not linearly increase the flow distally. And 
Austin talks about this idea of windsocking, where the decreased volume in that balloon creates actually a predominance of fluid into the distal aspect of the catheter, which creates occlusion. And then when you finally get that last bit of fluid out, you get a tremendous increase in flow. So difficult to do, but what if we could do it? What if we had technology, and this is a little bit of a, of a foreshadowing of technologies that are soon to be coming out in the Reboa field, but if we could manage that flow better or perfectly, what would happen? And Austin's going to talk about that right now. So in the lab, we do something slightly differently. So in the lab, you know, we really, in the lab, we want very, very precise flow because we're really trying to understand um, what is the ideal amount of flow? How long can we push out duration? So a lot of that is automated either through extracorporeal circuits that we actually, you know, we'll actually shunt the blood out of the aorta so we can control it perfectly. But what we have learned um, by a series of experiments looking at uh, basically what, what we did is we, we created a device that we can, that's very accurate in how much it occludes the aorta. And what we, what we did is what you can do is you can occlude the aorta and then very slowly come off your occlusion in a very graded fashion. And what we realized is when you occlude the aorta, that proximal vasculature, you know, is resuscitated, right? So if you, if you drop that balloon a little bit, that proximal vasculature is very dynamic. It's going to constantly be working. So if you were to drop, uh, if you start to get a lot of flow, it will, you know, you're, and, and maybe, maybe too much flow as well, you may not see a blood pressure change right away because the vasculature will, will clamp down a little bit. But the distal vasculature is very different. So as soon as you blow up that balloon, as we were talking about before, you get uh, dilation. So you, your, your distal vasculature is like maximally vasodilated really, really quickly. And what's nice about that is that once that occurs, your relationship between aortic flow and distal mean arterial pressure is almost linear. So we did an experiment where we kind of looked, where we really tracked that relationship between aortic flow and distal blood pressure as we came, as we reintroduced flow into the aorta. And um, we showed that it, in, in swine, that if you're at, you know, if you do a 10%, a 20%, a 30%, or a 40%, if you bleed off that much of their blood, that that relationship is almost is almost always very linear. And that what's even more surprising is that it's it has a very conserved relationship. So you end up having these these slopes that it doesn't matter sort of what stage of how how profound their shock is. Reintroduction of flow is very linear um, and it's and it's conserved. So that if you increase your distal map by about 10, you end up with an aortic flow of around 300. And so I think that's, that's how we've, we've, we wrote up, there's a paper that's in Journal of Trauma. I think it's still in pre-publication, but that's kind of what we talked about is that if you have the ability to get your distal pressure, as soon as you, as soon as you put up the balloon, if you get your distal pressure, there's gonna be a little bit, it, it's not gonna be zero, it's gonna be that five, it's gonna be that 10. If you increase from there by about 10, we think your flow is gonna be somewhere around 300. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, we've, we've shown that if you, if you are in like profound hemorrhagic shock, so in, a, in an animal model where we had a large liver injury that was uniformly lethal in 6 to 12 minutes, 20 minutes of complete occlusion, and then um, 70 minutes of a flow of 300, those animals were able to tolerate that 
so up to 90 minutes of sort of our intervention period, we're able to, to, to tolerate that um, surprisingly well. And we're able to, as soon as you resuscitated the animal and had damage control uh, surgery, um, those animals started to get better right away. They started to make urine right away. They started to clear their lactates right away. Um, and that's in comparison to animals that would get 90 minutes of complete occlusion, which is probably more than anyone would ever actually do. But those animals, you know, once you you know, once you bring flow back in, those animals, their lactates continue to climb for the next 60 minutes. They never start making urine. So that's why we kind of, we talk a lot about this flow of, aortic flow of 300. And that's sort of where that comes from, is from those, those animal studies. So we think that utilizing your distal map is a, uh, is a reasonable way to um, estimate what your aortic flow is. So today we had a great episode. We had David Calloway, we had Tatsua Nuri, and we had Austin Johnson. And I've got one more superstar for you. We're going to conclude this off with Zaf Kasim out of the East Coast. Zaf, how are you doing? Excellent, excellent. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So Zaf is our, our Reboa expert. He teaches at our Reanimate course. He'll be out here in just a couple days, huh? Oh, yeah. Looking forward to it, man. And you just got back from uh, Europe. Tell me yes. about the conference. How was it? Yes, it was uh, really excellent. So I had the real honor of, of sharing the stage with uh, Nori and uh, Austin and several of the real thought leaders uh, in Reboa at this conference that was held in Orebro, Sweden, which is uh, just outside of Stockholm. Uh, and it's called the EVTM Conference, or the Endovascular Trauma Management Symposium. And really hats off to the to the organizer, Tal Horik, who put together a fantastic world-class symposium. And what was really neat about it was that we got perspective from people all over the world, and everybody kind of put their egos aside and just shared what they knew and what they uh, had experience with about this uh, evolving concept. So really awesome. So you listened to the episode, you listened to David, you listened to uh, Tatsua, you listened to Austin. Bring it home for us. Like, what do I need to learn? What do I need to know about Reboa in 2017? Well, I, I think, you know, they highlighted really important and interesting concepts. You know, they, uh, there's recurring themes that we're, we're looking at, like, uh, you know, we have to select our patients appropriately. And, and remember, these are these are the guys who are exsanguinating after you do all the stuff that you normally do in your major trauma resuscitation. And that's where where these people are, are going to benefit potentially from this. Um, and you have to watch out for things like associated injuries like TBI. You know, do they have a bad heart? Those things can can be detrimental potentially with Reboa in. So you have to kind of nuance your use of it. Uh, occlusion times is a big deal. Um, still, we're not sure exactly what's the ideal occlusion time, but uh, concepts like partial Reboa is really gonna bring this, uh, this occlusion time uh, longer and allow us to do this for longer periods. And then that risk of distal ischemia um, is, is one that's really worrisome. And again, partial Reboa is showing some really interesting animal data um, about the, the benefit of doing that concept and improving the perfusion of those end organs. Um, to, to really kind of uh, improve our times there. Um, and the other thing is, I mean, there were some highlights that from the conference that were re really interesting, and I think we can, we can add to that. And a couple of things that kind of stood out for me was, um, you know, the training and improving the fidelity around the training is really critical. You know, we talk about getting our arterial access early, uh, but training models are really uh, uh, good to kind of build on 
Uh, not everybody can use the cadaver models, but at, at the EVTM, they had a workshop where they were using uh, animal models. Um, they were using small pigs there. And the, the neat thing about that was that the femoral artery anatomy in that was very similar to uh, what you get in a shocked uh, human. So really tiny arteries that you have to try and access. So I think that really goes a long way to be able to improve the fidelity of your training. Um, and uh, it's becoming more and more clear across the board. And this, this symposium made it clear that it doesn't matter really what specialty name is on your badge. Um, as long as you have that training, whether you're emergency physician, vascular surgeon, a trauma surgeon, you know, everybody can be trained to, to be able to use their existing skills to kind of deliver this. Um, and one final concept I think that's really important is that we need to kind of think about moving this to other places. Um, so not just in the trauma bay, we need to think about bringing this to the pre-hospital environment in, in appropriately resourced settings. And our colleagues from the London HEMS uh, service and, and even the Japanese were presenting some really uh, good work about uh, their experience with doing that. Um, and, and people from South Africa, I had a, a friend of mine, George Elsthausen, who was presenting data from South Africa that's, uh, where they initially thought Reboa might not be useful. And then they found that, yeah, it did have a place in, um, in the operating room as opposed to in their trauma bays to help facilitate uh, some difficult cases. And then we had colleagues from Norway who were using it for the management of postpartum hemorrhage. So the, the concept that this is just for the trauma bay um, can be kind of expanded to say that, hey, you know, we need to use this either in austere environments, pre-hospital environments, or in other settings of the hospital as well to manage these super sick patients. So just a few highlights from that conference and kind of building on the concepts that were already talked about in the podcast so far. Awesome. That's awesome, Zaf. And, you know, at Reanimate, we teach ECMO and Reboa, and Zaf is a big part of that. He helps lead us uh, as far as the lectures go. And also when we come down and, and work on the cadavers and on the simulators and, and putting these catheters in and understanding exactly where they go. So, Zaf, I will see you in a couple days. Look forward to it, man. Thanks a lot for having me on. So take-homes today, as we said, uh, look talk about hyperkalemia and uh, look for that post takedown of the pump. We talked about partial Roboa. We talked about um, TBI and how maybe that's not such the greatest patient to do it in. And with, with such great presenters, we had Tatsua and David and Austin. And I tell you what, I had a whole another conversation with Austin. I'm going to put this up on the website. It's about a half hour. It's not edited, but it's just it's just he and I chatting about stuff with Reboa. So if you want to take a listen to that, you can take a listen as well. But from EDECMO Podcast and Zaf Kasim, signing off. Take it easy.